scripture reading this morning is a single verse taken from the book of Acts chapter 10. I'll be reading for you verse 38. Acts chapter 10 verse 38. It's found on page 977 in your pew Bible. And God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. As Philip mentioned, we have a guest speaker this morning, uh, Brother Ron, uh, Don's brother, taught the first service, and now Brother Don is going to speak to us. And um, this afternoon, uh, if you'll note in the bulletin, at 2.30, they're each going to speak at different funeral homes, and then at 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock, they'll speak again here on subjects on grief and loss and ministering to those um, who are suffering from that. Uh, but Brother Don is about to speak to us. He graduated from Freed Hardeman uh, and then went on to get his master's degree in ministry from the Harding Graduate School of Religion. He served for a minister for 30 years, and then as of May 2008, he became the executive director of the North Alabama Christian Children's Home in Florence, Alabama, uh, where he lives. He also serves as a deacon at the Florence Boulevard Church of Christ there in Florence. For 24 years, he taught an area grief support class in places where he's lived, spoken on different things about grief with preachers, nurses, chaplains, and healthcare professionals. He also does seminars on Alzheimer's and dementia care. There's a flyer in the back on that if you're interested. Um, and he wrote a book in 96 with his brother titled Walking with Those Who Weep, A Guide to Grief Support in its eighth printing. And then he wrote a follow-up uh, that is in his fourth printing called Hope for Those Who Struggle, Coping with the Losses of Life. And both of those, along with another book, are available for purchase in the lobby to the left of Info Central. Uh, he's been married to his wife, Lisa, for 37 years. They have two sons, Matt and Ben, and one grandson and four granddaughters. And then, on a personal note, his, um, we have some interesting connections. His first son, Matt, is married uh, to Amanda, who is the sister. Her sister is married to my brother. So, uh, if you can follow that. And then his youngest son, Ben, was my college roommate at Freed. And... Uh, other than Kim, who's who I consider my best friend. And uh, even though, just this despite the fact that he is an Alabama football fan. Uh, but I will say when we became friends, the roles were kind of reversed. Tennessee was pretty good, and Alabama wasn't fielding the Avengers every week. But uh, anyways, uh, had some fond memories being at his house on weekends. And uh, please give him your attention as he speaks to us. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Mize, as I know him as. And I remember 12 years ago when Ben decided to bring 19 Freed Hardeman friends home for the weekend. And it just happened to be the third Saturday in October. And so one side of the den was adorned in orange and the other side was adorned in red. And at the end of the day, the orange people were hollering a whole lot more than we were on that occasion. We love Jeremy and Ken, Kim, and uh, I also know Philip and his good family for many, many years. This is actually part one of a second lesson, which we'll be do I'll be doing at five o'clock, in which 
we'll be giving practical information concerning what you can do to help folks who are in grief. And so maybe you might desire, desire to be a part of that class. The labor of the Franklin camp made the statement that on any given Sunday in an audience such as this, there may be as many as 75% of the people in the audience who are hurting in one way or another. It may be folks here today who have gone through lack of sleep because they are exhausted over the care of a loved one, whether at home or at the hospital. There may be folks here contemplating financial decisions where there's too many bills and not enough money and just really wondering what to do. There may be folks in this audience that are contemplating the nursing home decision for their loved one and knowing that they need to go, but at the same time, difficult to make that decision. There may be people here today that are dreading tests concerning going to the doctor this week or maybe waiting results of decisions that have already been made and tests that have already been performed, but just waiting on the inevitable. In this audience today, there may be folks who are slowly putting one foot in front of the other as they come back to church, perhaps for the first time, without their loved one physically present. Others may be thinking about the medicine that they really need, but they just simply can't afford, or other things of that nature. We often think about grief in regards to those who have died, but what about helping and ministering to those that are presently alive, that are dealing with chronic illnesses, or that are dealing with some of the problems that we just discussed. I'd like for us to think about that this morning, and first of all, deal with it from a biblical rationale, and then some rules that perhaps we need to remember. And you have a handout that you might choose to follow along and fill in the blanks. If we're going to be like Jesus, then like our Lord, number one, we need to go about doing good. The verse that was just read talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. If we want to be like Christ, then we too need to be known for the good that we do in the lives of others. Secondly, like our Lord, we need to be moved with compassion as we see the needs of others. That phrase, moved with compassion, is found several times in the New Testament. And it's used in reference to our Lord. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, he sees a great crowd coming into the himself. And he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he took care of their needs, both physically and also spiritually. We too need to see the hearts and problems of others and be moved with compassion in trying to help them as well. Number three, helping in the lives of others involves deeds, that is actions, as well as words. It's not just enough to say, well, I'm praying for you and go on our way. But if we truly are going to be God's people, then we've got to see their problems, and then try to do what we can to help them. John put it this way in 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. 
But whoso hath this world's good and shutteth up of his, his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed, that is in action, and in truth. As John Hall would put it, kind looks, kind words, kind actions, and warm handshakes. These are secondary means of grace when we are in trouble and are fighting our unseen battles. But also as we think about this biblical rationale, number four, helping in the lives of others involves compassion, it involves effort, it involves sacrifice, and it involves continued caring. It's not enough to think that we've done our deed as we need to to help somebody one time and then just go on our merry way. Luke chapter 10, our Lord tells us a very interesting story of a man on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, how that he was beaten up with thieves. They took what was important to him. They took his clothes. They left him mortally wounded. You may recall that in that journey, on that much traveled road, there came a priest and there came a Levite. The priest realizes that this man being wounded, probably blood oozing from his wounds, if he touches him, if he tries to help him, he's gonna be unclean. He can't go into the temple. So he passes by on the other side. The Levite comes along. The text suggests the idea that the Levite went over and looked at him. Philip, I thought to myself more than once, what must the man on the ground have thought when here was an able-bodied person that could have helped him see his plight and then just walk away? But then the Bible tells us here comes a Samaritan. And notice the text suggests as he journeyed, here's a businessman. He has places to go. He has commitments to keep. He has things to do. But he sees the plight of this individual and he's moved with compassion to the point that he goes back to his beast of burden and he brings back oil and wine. Wine to cleanse the wounds, oil to dull the pain and seal the wound. And then he bandages this individual we know enough about things concerning bandages that they had to be changed at least in the first 24 hours several times. And so here's a person that attends to his needs and throughout the night is taking care of his needs and taking care of those bandages. You see, he did that because he had compassion. And that suggested the idea of the effort. He's walking while this man is riding and he is willing to sacrifice his time and his effort in seeing after the needs of this man. And when he has to leave the next day, he doesn't say, be warmed and filled, I've done what I need to do, but he leaves money behind. And notice that the innkeeper does not argue with this man about the idea that he might have to pay more later on. Here's a man of integrity. He has proven who he is by what he has done. He's not going to question the idea that he may have to come back and this man pay more for him to convalesce. On March 3rd, 2001, 
As I was preaching at the North Carolina congregation in the Florence area, I was delivering this same lesson to our congregation. Unbeknown to us, one of our deacons, Tim Haddock, was in the emergency room. He had been having trouble for several days, falling and getting dizzy and not being able to see clearly. The test at the hospital showed that day that he had a brain tumor and it was beyond stage one. Needless to say, we were all in shock, but we all went to the hospital to spend time with Tim and Kathy. And among them was a fellow deacon friend of Tim's named Ronnie Putnam. Ronnie came into the room where Tim and Kathy were staying and they said, we know that you have no way of deciding what you're going to do about this situation, which hospital you're going to attend, but I want you to know that wherever you go, I'm your driver. If you want to go to MD Anderson in Texas, I'll go. If you want to go to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, I'm going to take you. They chose UAB Hospital in Birmingham. And for the next 22 months, he and his wife, Janet, would attend to the needs of this couple by dropping them off literally at the door of the hospital, staying with them, keeping their two teenage daughters whenever they had to be there at UAB for a period of time. And the reason was because he was moved with compassion. And that required effort, and that part required continued time and sacrifice, and yet they were willing to do it. It's sort of the idea, I don't care how much you know until first of all, I know how much you care. Fifthly, helping the lives of others gives us the commendation of the Savior himself in the future blessings of heaven. What does it say there in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 and following? The Lord in that great roundup chapter says, Come, you blessed my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you came unto me. I was in prison and you visited me. The Lord sees the good that we are willing to do in the hearts and lives of those who are hurting. And so it's important as we think about, first of all, this biblical rationale that we be like our Lord in regards to the thing that we do. But now on the page, on the other side of the page, we're gonna talk about some things in just a moment about rules to remember and aiding the hurting. What is it we can do to try to help people? It's important in times of sickness that we treat those that are sick as a whole person. Think about the losses that already illness brings to you, the dependence that you have to give to others because you physically or mentally can no longer do those things yourself. It's so important that as we go to visit and minister those that are hurting, that we treat them with the dignity and the love and the compassion that we would like ourselves. Some years ago, in a nursing home in Ireland, a lady that had died as they were going through her effects, personal effects, they found this poem that she had written 
It's, in call, it's entitled, See Me. What do you see, nurses? What do you see? Are you thinking when you look at me? A crabby old woman, not very wise, uncertain of habit with faraway eyes, who dribbles her food and makes no reply. When you say in a loud voice, I do wish you'd try, and forever is losing a sock or a shoe, who unresisting or not lets you do as you will with bathing and feeding the long day to feel. Is that what you think? Is that what you see? Open your eyes, nurse. You're not looking at me. I'll tell you who I am as I sit here so still, as I use at your bidding and eat at your will. I'm a small child of 10 with a father and mother, brothers and sisters who love one another. A young girl of 16 with wings on her feet, dreaming that soon now a lover she'll meet. A bride, soon at 20, my heart gives a leap, remembering the vows that I promised to keep. At 25 now, I have young of my own, who need me to build a secure, happy home. A woman of 30, my young, oh, they grow so fast, bound to each other with ties that should last. At 40, my young sons have, have grown and are gone, but my man's beside me to see that I don't mourn. At 50, once more, babies play around my knee. Again, we know children, my loved one and me. But dark days are upon me. My husband is dead. I look at the future and shudder with dread. For my young are all rearing young of their own and I think of the years and the love that I've known. I'm an old woman now. And nature is cruel. Tis her jest to make old age look like a fool. The body it crumbles, grace and vigor depart. There's now a stone where once I had a heart. But inside this old carcass, a young girl still dwells. And now and again, my battered heart swells. I remember the joys and I remember the pain and I'm living and loving life all over again. I think of the years all too few, gone too fast, and accept the stark fact that nothing can last. Open your eyes, nurse, open and see, not an empty old woman. Look closer, see me. It's so important that as we minister to those who are hurting, that we give them the dignity that they deserve. Number one under rules to remember, caring is more than kindness. It is trying to find ways to ease the suffering of others. It's not enough that we care, but we try to show them our care by the things that we do. We as concerned friends don't have to have all the answers. All they need to know is that we are with them in their journey. Deborah Novak of the Capstone School of Nursing put it this way, caregivers do not have to have all the answers in the lives of others. If we are there to help them with the questions, that's enough. Dying people are on a voyage. What they need is a community to go along with them on the trip. When we go to visit others, let's not shun or avoid someone simply because of the illness that they have. Now, there may be times when we have to go visit at special times, 
Dementia patients typically are better up in the day as opposed to early in the morning if we choose to go and visit with them. But sometimes people will say, well, I want to remember them the way they were, and because they're not that way anymore, I'm just not going to go. Think about all the losses that they were dealing with, and now they have to lose your friendship because you can't handle it. It just doesn't seem right, does it? Secondly, never underestimate the, the knowledge of sick people. They often know a great deal more about the illness than you think they might. When my friend was there in the hospital with his brain tumor, people would come and visit with them from a distance away, two and a half hours from where they lived. That was wonderful. But then rather than talking to him that was lying there in the bed that had nothing on his mouth or face that he could not talk, they would instead ask the wife, how's he doing? And Kathy would say, he's right there, ask him yourself. We need to be careful about the way in which we visit people. Number two, in all of our visits, try to offer hope. Hope is the spiritual oxygen of the soul, it's been said. In Job chapter 17, verse 15, he says, And where is now my hope? As for my hope, who will see it? Or in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 4, To him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. People need to have hope, not false hope, but hope that things can get better, that perhaps tomorrow can be a better day than today. We all know about the power of hope. The story is told of a teacher that was hired by a school system to go and visit and to give English to a young man who had been severely burned on all of his body. And so this teacher went in to the very first time, never having met this young man before. And he was almost covered from head to foot with bandages, and he was in great pain. But she spent the hour as they desired, teaching him English. She left that burn unit thinking this is really nothing more than a waste of time. He's in so much pain, there's no way he can comprehend the verbs and adverbs and such like. But being paid by the school system, she came back the second day. As she was about to go into the unit, the charge nurse stopped her and said, ma'am, I need to talk with you. She thought she was in trouble. But the charge nurse said, what did you say to that young man yesterday? She said, well, ma'am, I didn't say anything but teaching him verbs and adverbs. The nurse went on to say, whatever you said, keep on doing it. He has shown more improvement in the last 24 hours than he has in weeks being in that unit. With renewed vigor, she continued to teach and continued to help him, and he did get better. And finally, the day came when he was able to leave that unit and go back home. And when they asked him why the change, he made this statement. I thought to myself when that teacher came in the very first time, a school system would not waste money on a boy that was not going to live. Hope is so, so important. Number three, hospice research 
did a study that suggested that a six-minute visit, if you were sitting down, seems twice that long to a patient. Actually, what they found out was this, that if you go and visit somebody at the hospital and you say, well, I really don't have a lot of time. If you sit down across from them, it seemed like 15 minutes to that person. Everybody has six minutes. And listen to what they say. Don't fill in the blanks of what they're trying to say, but listen to them because that means so, so very much. Number four, remember what was. Restore what remains. Recreate what is possible. Remember what was. No doubt some of you have loved ones who have dementia. Someone that has Alzheimer's. They're in that portion of the hippocampus. That short-term memory has long been destroyed and is often the first part to be destroyed within the brain. Yet at the same time, they can with clarity tell you about things 50 years ago and about where they were and what they were doing. Maybe you would do nothing better than just to allow them to talk about the past and to enjoy them as they talk about those things that happened so many years ago that are still a part of their mind. Restore what remains. What can they do? A person who has cancer, a person who has some type of illness, can they spend an hour in your car seeing the beauty of the changing of the leaves? Maybe that's something you can do for them. We had a wonderful elder back at our congregation, Brother Malachi Parker. We knew him as Brother Kai. He was a wonderful song leader and a wonderful elder. He was dying of prostate cancer, but some of us men had the opportunity to go and stay with him, sometimes for four hours at a time so that his wife could get out and do things. Brother Kai loved Burger King. He loved the Whopper. One of the best days in my life was the day when I got to take Brother Kai to Burger King there in Florence and get him a Whopper. I got him one of those crowns also that he was able to wear. We went back home and he needed to take a nap, but we tried to do what we could. Thirdly, recreate what is possible. Are there church members who no longer can come to church because physically or emotionally they weren't able to do so? Why not take the church to them? Why don't on a Sunday morning after services, 10 or 15 come together in their home for 15 or 20 minutes and worship with them? It will mean more to them. One of the last things that dementia patients forget are biblical things, as in the songs or in scriptures. And thus it will mean more to them and it will mean much to the caregivers as well. In regards to the caregivers, number five. In Psalm 142 verse four, there is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. My hope is that no one in this congregation could make this statement that is found in God's word. The statement is, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. One of the saddest verses in all the Bible Here's a person in trouble. Here's a person that needs help. They're looking for help, but there's no one there. 
I knew of a lady who lost her husband. I've been a part of that congregation for many, many years. And several weeks after the death of her husband, that lady had the courage to go to the, one of the ministers of that congregation and said, said to her, him, brother, I have been a part of this church for many years. I am not going to leave. But I want you to know that the American Legion did more for my family than this church family has. That was hard to hear. But he was grateful because there could be some changes that are made. It's important that we not forget those who are hurting, but also the caregivers as well. Do you know that the word feeling has a European origin and it literally means to touch? And in Mark chapter one, we have a story of our Lord having a leper coming into his presence. The leper asked the Lord, asked the Lord as he knelt before him, if you can, you can make me clean. Remember what Jesus did? He reached out and touched the leper and he said, I will you be clean. Did Jesus have to touch the man in order for him to be healed? Of course not. There's examples in the Bible where from a distance, not even seeing the diseased or sick, he was able to heal. Why did he touch the leper? And the answer is to show that man that he was of care and of worth and of value in being touched. To those who are sick and to their families, we need to show our touch. We need to show our care. We need to show our concern for them so that no one doubts that their family is with them in this journey. Number six, when in doubt, listen. When in doubt, listen. It's not only listening, but it's how we listen. We communicate in three different ways. 7% of our communication is with words. 38% of our communication is by tone and inflection. Think about the difference between these two same statements. I love you. I love you. You see the difference? The first one, you felt like you had to say it. We're in trouble, fellas, and so we say that to the loved one. The second one, we really want to say it, and it shows our passion. And then 55% of our communication is by body language. Let's imagine that you come to me this afternoon and say, Brother Don, I need to talk to you about my problems concerning grief. And while you're doing that, you're sitting, I'm not sitting across from you, but I'm standing. And while you're talking, I'm doing like this, and I'm doing like this, and I'm doing like this. What am I saying? I really don't want to be here because that's what I'm communicating by my body language. And so we need to communicate and listen in the proper way. Number seven, instead of saying what you need to do is magical words to a hurting family or tell me about it. So often we become judge and jury for folks who are ill, telling them what they should be doing. This is especially true in grief and sadly, often we're not in their shoes and we have not been where they are now to try to make those type of statements. But rather we should say, 
What's going on in your life? What can I do to help? Be there with them and for them. And when you're visiting folks that are in need, always pray. But men, be strong enough that when you pray for them, before you begin that prayer to our Father, you ask them this one question. What would you like for me to pray for today? You might be amazed at what they might desire for you to pray for. And so as you pray for them, ask them that question. And then number eight, greater lessons about faith are often proclaimed from a hospital bed than can ever be proclaimed from the audience. I mean that only in the subjective manner. A person may sit in the church building three times a week and we know nothing about their faith. They may not be the child of God that they need to be even though they come every time the doors are open. But often in times of illness, we see the true faith of people because of their love for God and their love for their family, even to the very end. On that Sunday afternoon when Brother Tim my friend with brain cancer finally lost his battle with cancer but won the war against Satan. One of the last statements he made was that he was going to be true to the end and that Satan was going to lose out. Yes, he could take his body, but he could not take his soul. And because of his faith and allegiance to God, he was going to a better place. I hope that these things that have been said will be of some help to you. Part two of this lesson will be at five o'clock when we talk about practical things that we can do to help folks who are in grief. And so I encourage you to be a part of that. We're about to sing a song that asks the question, does Jesus care? When my heart is pained, too lonely for mirth or song. Sometimes in life we wonder, if our Lord cares, but we have the edict from God's word that suggests that he does. Peter could say in 1 Peter 5, 7, we can cast all our care upon him because he cares for us. 2 Corinthians 1 talks about the God of all comfort and our son is the God of all comfort as well. In this audience today, you might need to become a child of God and give your life to him by faith, repentance, confession of faith, and baptism. You can begin your walk with Christ today, heaping all your burdens, all your problems upon our Lord and allowing him to wash away those sins. Maybe there's burdens of a spiritual nature in your life as a child of his that you just need to let this congregation know about or things that have allowed you to be separated from God. Why not come back home? Because our Lord cares right now as we stand and sing.